You are listening to Radio Ramadan 365 Podcasts. Radio Ramadan 87.7 FM and program Reflections. Uh, I'm your host, Zubair Akram. And in this Reflections, again, Alhamdulillah, we have uh, our guest, Sheikh Rizwan Muhammad, all the way from Istanbul, uh, who has joined us uh, to reflect on a few ayahs that we're going to present. Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh. Alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Salam, Sheikh. Uh, how are we today? Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Very well. Thank you. Very well. Alhamdulillah. Um, today, twelfth of Ramadan, and I'm personally I'm feeling uh, a little bit disjointed, a bit kind of feeling the the toughness of twelve um, uh, consecutive fasts. To be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, not sure how people are feeling and how you are feeling, but uh, it, it has taken the toll. I think it's well, the the internal health relies on uh, the, the the spiritual health you're in as well. Uh, how you feel is probably directly connected to how well you're connected with your creator and how well you're connected and how you're getting on with uh, the the inner dimensions of ramadan itself uh, i personally feel that there are the energy that you derive from uh, the 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 sound connection is far superior far more than what you would normally uh, can rely on just keeping good with your food diet sleep there is something to be said about your connection as well is there something that you could elaborate on <laughs> that's if i agree with you in the first place i don't know if i agree with you there is you um you know it's not that i don't agree with you it's just um you could say that a person who understands the ultimate purpose of something probably is more um persevering in doing what they're doing so if somebody is setting up you know a business for example and they know that there is a need for it or there's a place in the marketplace for that business they will persevere despite the difficulties of having initially to put in so much time so much effort so much planning and so the thing that gets them through and makes them successful is the fact that they don't give up so if you think of like companies like apple for example steve jobs who is a kind of the brains behind that whole um, enterprise, he insisted on doing something, but you know the amount of energy he put into it was almost obs- obsessive for some people. And so they, a lot of people just thought this is too much, too difficult, too much sacrifice, and then they just left. And so what's true in the world, which is you know your perseverance with something and patience with something, if you know the end of it, um, it also applies to religion as well, in a sense. So if you think about having to deal with, um, you know, it's essentially a type of pain, hunger for people. It's a difficulty, it's a type of pain. And so people um, process pain in different ways. So there's so so many studies out there about the fact that people process pain and are able to alleviate the feeling of pain by thinking about something that's higher than that or something that distracts them from that pain itself. And so... Hunger, in a, in a sense, everybody feels the same type of hunger, but it's a question of the degree to which you have patience in the hunger. And then if you ex- expand it, it's, it's the degree to which you have patience in the tests as well. So it's essentially fasting is a test. It's not as if 
it's something um, different. It's a test of your patience, endurance, uh, also your belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which is why the Prophet said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the hadith Qudsi, as-sumuri wa bihi, that the fast is only specifically for me, and I will give the reward of it. That reward and the expectation of the reward is the thing that makes a person excel and become aware of God, even when they know that nobody else is watching them. So that patience and belief in the unseen is cult cultivated and nourished by fasting in a way that's not nourished by many other or most other, or in fact, any other um, act of worship because it's for God. Because, you know, it's one of these things that's hidden. It's like it's a, it's a special type of hidden act. Um, in Ramadan, everyone knows who's fasting, but the internal act of fasting and what you're doing with your time when nobody else is observing you, that's between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that cre the creation of taqwa, which is God-fearingness and God-awareness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is, is very much cultivated by fasting. And so if you take your eye off the prize, yes, you'll find fasting difficult. You know, when you you take the eye of the prize, meaning you lose sight of the function of fasting, then essentially, yes, it will be difficult because it'll be, oh my goodness, how many hours left? And it's getting really difficult. And it's difficult to balance work and sleep and children and everything else. It becomes a burden. But for a person who thinks, that the fasting is for me and I will give the reward of it for them it's a completely different thing it's it's they're wanting the time of fasting to be extended which is why everybody has to fast the same number of days 30 days so people that love fasting still have to stop they still have to break their fast and they mm -hmm. have to observe the 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 eid al-fitr and the, and the and the and the celebrations of eid mm -hmm. so for me reflections um every year there has been some highlight one of the years I remember there was this definition of tawfiq. Mm. Uh, tawfiq meant when your will is in sync with Allah's will is what tawfiq is. Mm. When when you are doing and you're about to do what Allah actually wanted you to do. Mm. Uh, and when both, uh, again, Iqbal says, uh, you know, that, that you are elevated to a point where uh, you are doing what no, no. What you want to do? So that's the pinnacle, right? That's the pinnacle. But uh, I think a step before that, uh, when both creator and the creation is in sync, is mm. Tawfiq. Mm. Yes. But this yes. year's uh, highlight for th that's that was a highlight. That was a wow moment for me, and I've I've quoted it to myself and to a lot of people many a times. What Tawfiq is, and it's always a wow uh, to to be able to define Tawfiq succinctly, and to be able to feel what Tawfiq is. Mm. Uh, it, it doesn't come easy. I, I think when it comes, when it clicks. Yeah, yeah when it clicks, uh, it's like um, it's like a, it's like everything is in sync and everything is in perfect motion. And in something like the the, the the planets moving in their perfect orbit, your your actions are in the perfect orbit of God's qada and qadr. It's like everything is, as the Quran says, everything is revolving in its own orbit perfectly. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. 
mm. on that sofik. But this mm. year, the day one when we started uh, Rafla, the, mm. the, the the definition of Rafla, mm. uh, what heedlessness is, to to mm. be able to define what heedlessness is, and to be able to find yourself in a state of heedlessness through symptoms. Mm. Is is a privilege mm. to be able to know what you're going through is actually uh, you're in a state of heedlessness. Mm. Um, that in itself is privilege, I think. Uh, and then to be to be able to see how to cure it, mm. it, it, it is the next level. Uh, yeah, I mean, first, one thing is to diagnose, and another thing is to find the cure to it. So once you've, you know, once people found out there was such a, you know, a, a virus as COVID, they could identify it. And then the next step was to find a cure. So there's no point knowing what it is and not knowing then how to cure it or how to mitigate its its effects. So essentially, you know, that and Dawa is like, I think Ibn Qayyim al-Jawad has got a book about the, the, the illness and the cure. So there's no point having knowledge about illnesses and not knowing that these actions are things that cure or these material essences cure without balance, without connecting which cures which, you know, which medicine cures which Ill ailment. You understand? You have to know, there's no point knowing that you have a, a vaccine and then not knowing when to use it. And there's no point knowing that you have a, a illness without knowing which medicine to use for it. So it's, it's one of these things that, you know, ghafla is good to know, if only you want to cure it, there's no point knowing your ghafil and then being proud of the fact you're, you've diagnosed yourself yep. or in, in the future knowledge of the fact that, you know, you'll on your gravestone it'll be written that, what kind of ghafilan? <laughs> you know, like this person who used to be, you know, mashhoob and, and being heedless. <laughs> here, here, here lies the heedless. Here lies the heedless. Headless heedless, yes. Headless, heedless. Mm. Yeah, to be able to know that you're heedless, uh, one of the things that was highlighted, that you will become excited about small things and you will become depressed on small feelings. Mm. And that's you're in, in, in a fail of, uh, you're in the phase of heedlessness, right? Mm. Yeah. And the cure, amazingly, one of many was, well, well to be connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, is is a cure and the connection is the root itself yeah so the thing about uh, ghafla is that the, the obvious cure is dhikr because ghafla is a, a, in, in its fullest form is heedlessness of God's remembrance so you'd think that the cure is the opposite which is remember God the problem is that if it was that easy you wouldn't have forgotten God in the first place so you have to have things that are stepping stones to understanding that so scholars mention the most obvious one which is death and remembrance of death. And, and they say one of the ways you do that is to reflect over the death of people that are close to you and look at the nature of, the, of their life in, in coming into the world and then disappearing. And then one of the things he then says is prayer in the Prophet because it reminds you of his generosity and his character and his connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then, which then tells you that this is a person I need to emulate. And then you remove ghafla. This is why the, the Sahaba were, were con considered to be companions and called companions directly and literally because their companionship was a thing that, you know, relieved them and cured them of ghafla. So if you think about it, 
the connection to the Prophet was almost their, their salawat and their durood on the Prophet just to be with him, like to show thanks to him, to show gratitude to him, to serve him, to live with him, to fight with him. All these things were a type of salawat, durood. Because, you know, when we say, Allahumma salli ala Muhammadin wa ala Ali Muhammad, Allah send blessings and peace. Now, if you're in an if you're in a situation where you can actually give blessings and peace to somebody, it almost takes the place of saying blessings and peace. If, if, peace, if you see what I mean. Hmm. So, if you understood, like if you remember, if you were around the Prophet there's one thing to pray for the Prophet and say, "Allah, give him peace." There's another thing which is to be the means by which he is protected. So in the Battle of Badr, and the Battle of Uhud, for example, Ka'b ibn Malik, um, you know, all these companions that were around the Prophet for example, um, they, they actually exemplified the, 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 the salawat on the Prophet because they not only said it, but they did it. And that cured them, cured them of the ghafla. And so what we left with is distance in terms of time, in terms of many people place, in terms of connection for many people as well. That connection is reconnected by the prayer in the Prophet and the mere repetition of it is somehow gets in your heart, somehow makes your heart supple and more connected. Yeah, I, I say, I mean, you just take from the hadith, the Prophet said, Man salla alayha wahidan sallallahu alayhi ashara, wa rafa'a bihi ashara, wa naqasa bihi ashara. So whoever prays, prays me once, Allah prays him ten times. And raises their station up ten times and lowers their wrongdoings ten times. So, in other words, if you do it, there's an immediate effect on you, which is God is praying upon you. Now, what's the effect of that? I mean, you're going to think, say, what's the effect of that? The effect is obviously that you are going to, in some way, feel a closer connection to God in a way that's, in a way that's like yesterday we we're talking about shafa'a, which is connecting to the Prophet through his aiding of us in, in the hereafter or in this world. That as, is as a result of us seeking it, Shafa'a. And also the prayer in the Prophet is us seeking for Allah to pray upon him and to send blessings upon him and peace upon him. The effect of that is that that affects us as well, that God is the one that prays upon us. Hmm. Now that is like, it's not even that, you know, because in the hadith of Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi in which it's actually Hadith Qudsi, and the Prophet said, man, man, that Allah says, Man dhakarani dhakartuhu. Whoever remembers me, I remember him. Now, if you remember God and do dhikr, what happens is that God remembers you, does dhikr of you. But if you pray in the Prophet, وسلم, which is you say salawat, Allah doesn't just register that, He does that 10 times. To you, so there's a there's a there's a palpable difference in dhikr and the prayer in the Prophet because the prayer in the Prophet includes dhikr, includes the remembrance of Allah, and it also includes giving gratitude and thanks to a person that brought you out of light, brought you out of light into light. Such a difference in just hearing it or saying it. From actually feeling it, mm-hmm. and I, I just wonder how and when I will be able to actually feel it. So mm-hmm. I just, you know, it's it's academically saying it, 
knowing that this hadith is there and this hearing it, probably heard it many times before. Yeah. But yeah, we wait for the day, inshallah. Ya Rab. I mean, there, there's um, there's persistence in it and there's yearning in it. There's there's two kind of things that scholars talk about. So they talk about you know um, visualizing the Prophet Sallam or or uh, gaining proximity to the Prophet Sallam. They talk about certain ways that that's done. One of which is to simply to to imagine the Prophet Sallam, which is through the characteristics that we know very in in depth in depth. So the physical, um, moral, spiritual characteristics we know in detail to the you know the hair of the Prophet Sallam, the the you know the, the length, the the type of hair the Prophet had, the type of nose, the type of eyes, the type of lips, types of um, eyelashes. We are, we know all this in immense detail. The descriptions in Arabic are very, very clear. And so that builds up a yearning in which when you say Allahumma salli ala Muhammad, Muhammad is like a sweet name. And so you know in in in, in lots of na'at, they, 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 they have na'at, which are just about saying the name of the Prophet, never mind visualizing. Hmm. They talk about the name of the Prophet being sweet. And... <laughs> no, no, I, that wasn't a cue for you to start your um, ruminations on on Urdu poetry. But the point is, the the enjoyment of seeing the word itself is because you understand that that reminds you of somebody. So if you're in love with somebody, you make that you mention the name, um, and and what that brings to mind is the pleasure of being in the company, and the and the reminder of their characteristics and qualities. And so with the process, it's kind of a bit more um, elevated and also it's a bit more at stake. There's more at stake because your salvation's at stake. And you can see what he gave to your life, which you, if he wasn't in your life, what you'd be missing. And so then there's so much at stake, so much more at stake than just a person that you're in love with, infatuated with. There's somebody who is, is concerned about you more than you're concerned about yourself. You know, so that's like you know sometimes people give up with themselves you know they, yeah. they give I mean, many people go through life and they give up taking care of themselves their health their wealth their happiness and just it's kind of plod along the problem never uh, will never do that to you if you are if you're true to to his teaching and you're true to being connected to him he would never just say oh this is another person i've got somebody more important to look after so this is, you know, something that God has given him as um, as a blessing that you just yourself... A, yeah. Just a walk from uh, Babi Abu Bakr, I think it is, mm. to Babu Salam mm -hmm. and to Mukami Jibreel. Mm. And you keep doing that. And sometimes mm -hmm. you stop mm -hmm. and you salute. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you say salam. Mm. And you keep doing it in your imagination. Probably that mm. can help. Allah Akbar. Karenge. Haanji, hai humar bas meetha meetha. Choti si break. Sheikh Razwan Muhammad, humare mehman. Mein hoon aapka host, Zubair Akram. Or time hai is wakat. Saat bach ke chappan minute, 7.56. Allah Akbar. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad. Wo khairul wara wo mehboob yazda. Afu atau lutfu inayat Rab kizat unkizat megayat Rab jiski tarif mekate in naka ala kulkulukinazim. So, yes, in the Halim. 
सो शायरी में तीन चार शेरों में बहुत सी बात हो जाती है बहुत सी बातें खैरुल बशर खैरुल वरा खैरुल बशर खैरुल वरा What's the meaning of that? Khairul Bashar is obviously Khairul Bashar is obviously the best of humanity. Khairul Wara is is Wara is um, another. It's it's almost like a synonym of human beings. Wara, which is um, the best of mankind. So this is just descriptions of Prophet Sam Khairul Bashar, Khairul Wara. Um, a lot for inayat, so just like this subtleness and this. Care that he has, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Yani afu atau. Yeah, afu is like forgiveness, and 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 mm. ata is giving, giving and and um, presenting. Yes. And unki zat me gayat. Yeah, I wish. I really wish that uh, we, from a very young age, were taught these things as concepts uh, to interact with from mm. the. Uh, the personality of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam himself mm. i think uh, a large section of our community is kind of how i'm going to say there's a resistance in knowing the prophet through shumail yeah it's very very shocking because the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said he said teach your children three things um hubba nabiyyikum love of love of your prophet he speaks himself but he says the love of your prophet, which is me, myself, he's saying. And love of his family, which, remember, the family means that you're you're not just caring about the person, you're caring about the people that the person cared about. So it's almost like you take the person with everything that they have, which so is a higher level of love, if you understand it. Because you might have a, you might love somebody, but you don't like their, their brother or their sister or their aunt. But the person loves their aunt and their sister and their brother. Yep. And so you don't really love the person. So the least of that hadith is that you have to love me, you know, with everything that you might not like. The fact that certain people might feel privileged for being Ahlul Bayt or being Sayyid, for example. And I know people that will say, I love the Prophet, but I don't need to love the people that are from his family because, you know, they're just like me. But no, <laughs> the whole purpose is the Prophet loves them because he said he loves them. So you just have to bite the bullets and just, uh, you know, swallow your pride a bit. Quran and also the reciting of the Quran. So one is educational, one is an aspect of you need to teach your children how to recite Quran. Um, but the other two things about love. And the love comes first. The love is the thing that you know the child should be brought up with. And I'm a great believer in the fact that you know teaching children all the literacy of Islam and telling them how to answer questions and quizzes and you know knowing all the details about Islam without having any deep, deep love for the Prophet, his teachings. His akhlaq, knowing them, um, really having a deep connection with him, Sallallahu and what he stood for, that is far more important than being able to tell me, you know, the fara'id of wudu or being able to recite, you know, a number of chapters of Quran off by heart, because those that thing you've memorized will disappear if you have no love. Subhanallah. And so I always, I'm always fascinated. Such, with people, such, such, yeah. a, such a big secret of any good relationship that you just don't love the person, but you love. Who Everything they love. Everything yes, regardless of what you think about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. If you think yeah. about it, I'm not going to go into the details of what that means for <laughs> people in their own lives. <laughs> people are, I, I think, think it's understood. 
understood. people are getting ready for breaking their fast, but they should think themselves a bit, you know, that if you claim love for somebody, you need to then also, I know this happens with in-laws and things, all that kind of stuff. So you essentially have to, you have to also take into account the people that the person you love loves, regardless of what your opinion is. And that is like the whole point of humanity is that you're able to go beyond what you just just what you want to what is better for the one that you love as well. Hmm. And so Shama'il and love the Prophet has to be inculcated at a very young age within our communities. And that will remember that will remain, remain you know remain forever. That kind of love and attachment and and nostalgia for the Prophet will remain with, with children into adulthood. Um, but if you just have this kind of rote memorization that we have in Muslim countries and institutions, that will very quickly disappear. Because the moment they go into the big bad world, it's just gobbled up. Nothing remains. Faisal, In the name of Allah. The entirely merciful, the especially merciful. وقالوا اتخذ الرحمن ولدا سبحانه بل عباد مكرمون. And they say, the most merciful has taken a son. Exalted is he. Rather, they are but honored servants. لا يسبقونه بالقول وهم they cannot precede him in word, and they act by his command. He knows what is presently before them and what will be after them. And they cannot intercede except on behalf of one whom he approves. And they, from fear of him, are apprehensive. And whoever of them should say, Indeed, I am a God besides him. That one we would recompense with hell. Thus do we recompense the wrongdoers. Have those who disbelieved not considered that the heavens and the earth were a joint entity, and we separated them and made from water every living thing? Then will they not? So ayahs uh, until 30, uh, we, we have covered the first four ayahs yesterday, just a brief summary of that. And there is one little concept that I would want to kind of labor upon today, which is the idea of karam, mukarram. Uh, that's something that uh, we wanted to discuss in detail. Sheikh, this, this ayah number 26, it ends with the word mukarram. 
mm-hmm. Izzat. Uh, how is that one of the why and how is that important uh, to to know uh, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala just, just doesn't say that you are a nabi you are uh, you know listen to the person who is bringing the news the reason being mukramun they are the subhanallah wo to bande hain jinhe izzat di gayi hai so this this sense of karam from allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the, the concept of karam mukarram elevated is it earned is it given through practice uh, of certain things or is it something that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you and you become a nabi and hence you're asked to to be followed yeah bismillah rahman rahim so verse number 26 yes yeah, so so this essentially is about um, In the context of what's being discussed Is about people taking idols And specifically in this context Taking a thing which is in existence Such as an angel or a prophet As being a son of God In other words, having a special status Having some kind of connection Which means that they use words Which are for biological um, entities Such as son um, meaning a very close connection. Like, remember, sun can mean a, a, a biological thing, but it can also mean something that emanates or something that stands in for something else. Like almost, like, you know, in the past, they used to, if the king and they had a son, a sole son, one son, the son would be the one that takes the place of the king. And so it was just understood. And so when they say that Allah took a son, it means both of those things. And both of those things are inconceivable and unacceptable and improbable because of the fact that Allah is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Lam yalid wa lam yulad. He didn't neither begot nor was begotten. So Allah then says, Bal mukramun. But rather these entities you're talking about are servants and slaves of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But also you can say slaves are subservient and humiliated, but Allah then qualifies it by this attribute which is mukramun. Mukram in Arabic, you said, are they made it or are they, I think your question was, are they made honored or, or elevated or, or, or do they acquire it? Hmm. Um, mukramun in this context, because we look at this word, is a, is a, is a ism fa'il, which, ism mafo, sorry, which is a passive participle, which means that they're made into this. They are, are, are given this quality by God. Um, but doesn't mean the opposite, which is, is doesn't because this verse indicates that they are honored by God because of their actions. God is the one that honors them because of who they are. Um, does not negate the fact that also people are honored by their actions as well. Mukrim. So you have mukram, which is a person who's honored by somebody else. Mukrim is a is an entity which is given honor because of their own actions and their own their own behavior and their own. Um, you know, way of living, and so here, this it's it's something that is almost like an honor that they're given, granted by Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. Um, and ikram, remember, ikram is about generosity. The generosity depends where it comes from. In this context, it's a, it's a situation where they're granted it by Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, and that karam and that generosity and honor is bestowed upon them because of their status and their actions and their then their behavior in, in the eyes of people as well. And so karam obviously can be through wealth, it can be through teaching, it can be through service, 
Um, these are all aspects of you know the Prophet. You know was you so know he, he didn't karam like. Karam literally means generosity. It literally means generosity, but it also in Arabic, in classical Arabic, pre-Islamic Arabic, karam was um, understood to be a word used for grapes, for example. And and the Prophet, in fact, in a hadith, he said, "Do not call a believer um, by um, do not call grapes karam." He says, "Bal al karam huwa al mu'min." The the one that is generous is a believer in in, in a sense. So inab is, is a word that we use for. Um, grapes, but karam is also a word that was used in classical Arabic for grapes. Prosim preferred that to be used specifically for a believer because they were generous by nature, honored by nature, and um, because of their qualities of belief. Mukarram. And mukarram is a person that's made. Mukarram is a person that's elevated, a person that is, um, you know, it's an emphatic form of the same thing that God makes them um, honored. Respected, you know, a, a fountainhead of generosity, for example. Um, mukarram is, you know, would, as you would see, a person being Mukarram would be extremely generous. It would be, you know, hospitable, would be somebody that would, you know, as an example of that, would be that they would, you know, like Bedouins, they used to take care of people for three days and three nights. So if you arrived at their tent, there was an un unsaid rule amongst Bedouin Arabs that they would take care of a person for three days and three nights. And so we, we find that in you know Lawrence of Arabia, he has his whole autobiography. And he, he writes that very clearly that he used to wait for the the, the, the actual um, the being hosted by Bedouin Arabs when he arrived at their, their tent. Because it's something, you know, people in the West don't really think about that you can go to a person's door, knock, and for three days and nights, you can actually stay without any questions asked. And they can't ask you, in fact, what, what do you want? Why are you here? It was open doors for you know before the day of days of hotels. And so karam essentially is that quality of a person being extremely generous. And so in this in this verse, it's it's there to just to underline the fact that yes, they are not, you know, to be conceived of as partner partners with God and or sons of God. But it does not mean that they're humiliated, but rather they're mukramun, they're honored by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then it, you know, then it completes the, the, the discussion by saying that they do not precede him in speaking or, or expressing anything. And they only act based on his order. And so that's just like a it's like it's a very clear balancing act between saying that they're servants of God in servitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, honored at the same time. Which is a very clear contrast because if they're serving, they'd be slaves, but they're not slaves in that sense. They're servants in servitude, but honored servants in servitude. Because people get confused by the fact that they're honored and they think, oh, they must be it must be a son, must be worthy of worship, must be worthy of exaltation. But you can have both. You can have somebody that's honored but does not deserve to have the qualities of God. And so the Quran here is just simply expressing simple, a simple logical, um, you know, understanding of anybody, which is you can have both. You don't have to be hum humiliated and ridiculed because you're subservient. You can be honored and subservient at the same time. Hmm. So you know, we're in a sense, you know, slaves and servants of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. We're also, you know, people that would lo love to serve the Prophet Ali Salatu Wasalam. Does not mean we're humiliated by that or 
you know, hum humbled in that way by that con connection. We're honored by that kind of connection. And again, that's part and parcel of a lot of our poetry that is there. It's all to do with, you know, we would love to be just simple servants of the Prophet just serving and and being at his command, Sallallahu Reflections with Sheikh Rizwan Muhammad, Surah Anbiya, uh, 21st Surah of the Quran is what we've been uh, reflecting upon, uh, discussing, asking questions, trying to understand the underlying themes. Uh, what I've understood, it starts from setting up the scene of, you know, um, that there is, the, the time is up and people are still heedless. And in this admonition or in this uh, uh, kind of um, uh, lesson given, there is two types of people. One who remain heedlessness, not just heedless, they remain heedless, they, they also ignore and they display this attitude of I don't care. And then there is this emphasis of how exalted, how uh, important the people are who bring this message and then the importance of uh, the Ambiya and Prophet himself, and people mock, reject, and name name call, uh, and then the admonition from Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala how this is detrimental for people who get into this kind of behavior. But then there is this total change of scene. The the uh, the ayah that I'm going to ask Sheikh to comment on today, which seems nothing to do with what has been said so far, um, which is ayah number 30. Um, translation, have those who disbelieved not considered the heavens and earth were a joined entity. And then we separated them and made from water every living thing. Then will they not believe? Apparently there is no connection. I can't see a connection. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, is there a connection? You can't see the connection. So I'm closing my eyes for when I want to see, I'm trying to imagine the connection here. Hmm. So this is verse number 30. So it starts with the, no, no, this is the connection is right at the beginning. Okay. Like, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the, the kuffar have just said, there's all this kind of <clears throat> idols and there's interse intercession with all these, false gods and all these kind of things. First of all, they reject the message. They reject the prophet and they say he's a human being. And then they come up with their own hocus pocus of, of intermediaries and idols and, you know, all, and, and the Quran rejects that. And so this kind of hocus pocus on the one hand is now contrasted with speaking to the same people. Like they have said that God has taken a son and all this other stuff. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, so he then says to the the, the people are disbelieved. It's almost like saying, have they have these people not seen? So it's not speaking to us. Mm. So what's interesting here is not says, you know, is it not that people have seen? So it's not as if it's going to another valley completely. You will say, oh, it's now talking to the the the, the you know the Christians or the Jewish community or the Muslims. Because this is a Meccan chapter, so it's going to mostly engage with um, the Quraysh and the, and the people that disbelieve. Have the, have the people that disbelieve not seen? So 
obviously seen, what does that mean? It means that the something that must be clearly obvious. That the heavens and the earth, both of them were ratqan. Ratqan is actually an interesting word in Arabic because it means something something is woven, something that is brought you know tightly together. So you can imagine give an example of um, knitting, for example. If you knit and you can think of, you know, you, you have the you have the kind of cross stitch and all the rest of it. Now, how much of that is matter? Like it's saying that the, that the heavens and the earth, meaning everything. So, samawat means everything that is other than the earth, which is, you know, the universe in all its entirety. Al-Kawn, essentially. When the word when the Quran says, As-Samawati wal-Ard, it means everything other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, it says to them, do they not see that these were ratqan, that these were, you can say, you know, like my hands like this, ratqan, they're like kind of, Co-joined, mm-hmm. but it means that they were they will they were ultimately one thing. Okay. Ratqan. So ratqan, this idea, even the word, Heaven, you know, heavens Arabic. and the earth, they were joined. joined. No, no. So ratqan, ratqan, the word itself is onomatopoeic, meaning in Arabic it means what it sounds like. Ratq is like it is just really densely joined. Ratq. In, intertwined, right? Intertwined or congealed or in some kind of primal form. Mm-hmm. That both of these entities, meaning everything essentially. Mm. Fataka in Arabic is again onomatopoeic, which means it, it means what it sounds like. Fatak. Like it just explodes out or it just expands. So what's essentially being said is that the, the disbelievers not see, and they couldn't have seen. So what's seen, when it says seen, what it means actually is, can they not think and observe something, which is the heavens and the earth and everything was in one congealed mass, almost interwoven. And then we allowed them to just expand. And this is interesting because, you know, you know, if you just, it would last like three or four years. If you look at cosmology and, and, science, and scientific the research into the or- origins of the world and even the what what the world is made up of not the world sorry the, the universe is made up of you know they they i think it was in the 30s the um you know there was scientists who proposed the fact that um we we can't actually we can't actually account for you know when it says quite clearly we can't account for gravity based upon the matter that we have in the universe that we can observe meaning you know, gravity only works with a certain amount of matter. If the amount of matter and atoms and weight that we can see in the universe is all that it that is there, the universe would essentially just disappear and expand, and there should be no gravity. The fact that we have gravity means that there's something else there, which means that everything remains, you know, kind of in this kind of tension of existence and all the celestial, you know, celestial bodies are moving in, in a certain way. And they came up with this idea of dark matter. So dark matter is like this unseen, unheard, unobservable, um, unexaminable. Even to this day, they have no idea what it is. But this is what essentially when you go into space, this is essentially what they're saying exists, which is something that is not atomic. But it has to exist for gravity to, gravity to exist and for our understanding of the universe to exist. And yeah. so 
for, for, for everything to hold its own position. And what is that? It's unseen, unknown, unobservable. We only understand it through the fact that gravity exists. So, you know, it's quite fascinating that scientists of, of our atheistic persuasion are holding out for some kind of explanation of what, what this is and how it works and refuse to accept that, you know, something comes into existence, it must have a cause, therefore it must have an, a, a ultimate cause, which is, you know, wherever God, and they refuse to accept that. So they're running around in circles for the last, you know, 90 years, trying to believe, understand, to believe in believe. dark matter. No, they, they believe in dark what matter. we call God, cause. No, 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 they don't, because they, they, they refuse to accept that. So they keep running about saying, there's two, there's running about from different things. First of all, they're looking at dark matter and saying, oh, it must exist because that's the only way everything makes sense. And all we say to them is, how do you make sense of the universe coming into being if it had no cause? And then they say, you know, we'll talk about that later. Okay. So then you say to them, well, why are you believing in dark matter when you can't see it, you can't touch it, you can't measure it? You can only observe it through the existence of other factors that make it ne necessary. And then they kind of sit there. Makes sense, right? Yeah, and then they start scratching their heads. So what's that one? That's based upon the presupp the, the presupposition of disbelief. It's nothing nothing to do with science. There's no science here. There's nothing nothing to do with data analysis. It's the fact that inbuilt within society now, Western society, and and extending to that in Muslim society as well, is this idea that we cannot accept that there is a creator. So they've almost solved the equation, but there is a factor missing to, to, to balance the equation, right? No, they, they, they're still looking how, you know, when they talk about how, how something happened, they're still scratching the heads of the how. Why will never be answered by science anyway? Why is things come into being? We're just talking about how. We're just saying, how did the universe come into being? It has to have a cause. Mm -hmm. you no, know, leave aside, you know, leave aside why did God bring it into existence? Religion has an answer for that. You don't have to accept that, but at least accept the how. Mm -hmm. And so why do you expect accept the how when it's it's not even, you know, you know, people are, are you know, sci the scientific community are in, in, in such a commodity about this. And commotion is that they even say, okay, dark matter can't exist, so we have to have some other theory to explain how things come into being. So the point is why this kind of movement against explaining the cause. And so this verse is so fascinating because it says, did the disbelievers not see that the heavens and the earth were a congealed mass and then we caused them to expand? And that's interesting. Also, they say that, you know, when the Big Bang happened about 14 billion years ago, the initial expansion was so fast that it essentially should have just petered out and disappeared. Mm -hmm. You know, the expansion was so fast that you could not allow for the creation of a degree of stability which would lead to the ability for hydrogen and nitrogen and oxygen to kind of congeal into living matter. And then Allah says, And it's at that point that God created every living thing out of water. And that's exactly how, you know, any scientist would explain it, that they would say there was a bang, there was a big bang 14 billion years ago, and it expanded in such a way that the dark matter, the dark, the dark matter stopped it just disappearing. And then what you have then is a period within which you have the ability of say, amino acids to start to congregate and create some sort of life on specific parts of the universe. And th that's it. And science up until today 
has not come up with a better a better simplification of the creation of the heavens and the earth and the universe that we know than this verse. Verse number 30, a pivotal verse. Like, in terms of just the basic dynamics of it, nothing <clears throat> that any scientific journal can write is as clear of the main phases of how creation took place. Have those who disbelieve not considered that the heavens and the earth were a joint entity, mm. were a joint entity, and mm. then we separated them and made from water every living thing, then mm. will they not believe? Afala, yeah, will they not believe? And, and remember, you know, in, 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 in the Semitic languages, belief is, is Iman, which in Arabic we see Iman, in the other Semitic languages, it has a root which relates to craftsmanship, to being to becoming a craftsman. So Iman is something that you slowly get to conclude, you slowly come to the conclusion that you believe. Because when Muslims, as, as we know, we believe that there's this idea of fitrah, which is that you have a pure, clean slate when you're born. But you have to still gradually get to the point that you believe in God, the angels, the last day, you know, the prophets, the books, the qadan, qadar, all these things. You have to come to an end of your study and your perception and your investigation to come to believe those things. But essentially, Allah is saying, do they not then believe? In other words, there's a process that they have to think. And as you're thinking, you're growing and you're getting better, like a craftsman. The first time they hold a chisel, they'll be terrible. Probably a, a two or three months of holding a chisel to be able to know how to use it. And then a plane and then how to, all these things, they will, it will take time. And by 20 years, you'll have a master craftsman. Iman is very similar because Iman is slowly building up through observing things in the universe and in yourselves as the Quran says until it becomes clear to them that it's true hmm. and this is why you know, it's such it, an it, interesting it, thing so it, it's a process it's a gradual process yeah absolutely it, it does just doesn't come kind of like it, it's not a light bulb moment it happens especially like, if you if, yeah, if you're not it has for everybody it has to be some, in some way nobody's born with the complexities of faith. You're born with fitra, which is not the same thing. Fitra is uh, which is Prophet's words that every child is born upon the pure state. The pure state does not mean that you have all the details of Iman. You have the details of a creator or the perception of a, a greater being bringing things into being, but the belief in prophets, the belief in angels, all these things are acquired. Um, and so, you know, this verse is just such a fascinating, it's so much you can say, like Ratqan, Ratqan, you know when you think Ratqan, you're thinking also of like this kind of intertwining, because, you know, they talk about the, the universe, say they can, they can kind of approximate for a small percentage of the universe through atoms and molecules that we know of. So, Sheikh, the rest is empty. Yeah, okay, so... To understand Quran, we're, we're asked to understand the context. And the context is one of a tribal society, Bedouins, uneducated, illiterate, uh, with zero literacy or not much. Then there, there is a swamp of shura around. Basically, there, is, there are people who, who, who are poets. They're eloquent and they have language skills. Uh, linguistics is at its peak. And amongst them comes a prophet. Mm. 
who gives them simple teachings. Obey me, recognize your God. There are angels who come and they meet me and I'm telling you that I've had an angel telling me that there is a God who is one. He doesn't mm -hmm. share power. And for you to live a life of meaning, you need to obey a set of rules, connect yourself with me through your hearts, and you will succeed. That's the message, right? That's the context. I mean... <laughs> okay. But well, in then, some kind of then, eloquent then, way, it probably could be put more eloquently, but yes, you kind of get the mechanics of the system in okay. some way, yes. So the, the, then comes this ayah number 30, which is like uh, trying to explain a very complex thing of how this universe comes into being. Mm -hmm. Where's the context there? With, with, I mean, I'm at loss. How do so you're saying at the time of the the people that heard it, what 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 sense would they make out of it? Yeah. So essentially, I think this. I I always wonder about the same thing because it's almost as if yeah we're having a, we're having a an argument, and then all of a sudden, in the middle of the argument, you come up come up with some kind of um, complex scientific equation which proves mm. that you're wrong, you're right, and I'm wrong. But, you know, the, the Qur'an, for them, it must have had some intelligible meaning. Like Imam Shatabi says that you have to understand the Qur'an in, in, in the context of the customs and linguistic linguistic norms and usages of the of the time. So when the Qur'an talks about, you know, idols and, you know, on, the, on the ground and, and a God in the heavens, he said that you can't understand that as meaning that God was literally in the heaven because what they meant when they pointed to the heaven was not on the earth. In other words, not here somewhere else not meaning up in the in you know above my you know in, in in the heaven sky thing because what they meant by sky was anything that's not the earth and so mm -hmm. this verse has to be understood from the perspective of, of the quraysh or the or the people that disbelieved being told have they not seen that the heavens and earth were ratqan ratqan essentially is this again it comes, comes to a basic idea which is it will make sense to them, which is that everything was nothing and then everything came into being. Mm -hmm. Like this basic idea that had, everything has to come out of something. And that is something that the desert Arabs knew and the, and, the, and the Bedouin Arabs and also the Quraysh knew, which is, you know, they have in, 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 the, in that kind of period of time, they say that the, the footsteps in the sand point towards the camel and the dung points towards the caravan. So... They all knew this thing that there's signs that point towards something bigger. And so essentially they're thinking, well, you know, children are born and they're thinking, where's the child come from? And then the, the, the parent brought that into being. And then where did the parent come from? And you just naturally think and you think that there must be a greater power that started this whole process off in some way or bringing everything into being. This is a natural thing that you think of when you have a lot of time on your mind. You know, when you're thinking about how did we come into being. If you're in the in the middle of a desert or, you know, staring up at the celestial sky, you always do wonder about how everything came into being. And so the wonder that they must have seen in the heavens and the earth, the heavens, thinking about, you know, the the, the Pleiades and and the Thoraya and all these kind of constellations that they saw, they must have been thinking where they came from. And what came to mind would have been that these you know, bodies that we have in the heavens at some point must have been all congealed together and they just expanded. So when you look at the sky, it's just like it's expanded out 
It's saying there must have been at some point together. It's God that brought everything into being. So that would make sense to them in a very basic, primal sense. Because remember, don't underestimate them. You know, within 100 to 150 years, you know, the, you know, the astronomers who were from the Persian Muslim community started to map out the celestial bodies, map out the circumference of the of the world that we know of, you know, understand the the movements of of the the the, the sun and the and the moon and Saturn and Uranus around the sun, rather than you know. So we were saying that this curiosity always existed. And always existed. Yeah, in, in a basic sense, it is this idea that, the, that those scattered stars at some point were not scattered, they were together. And so it was God that brought them into being. And but now uh, the funny thing is, I mean, the funny hmm. thing that you laugh at, I mean, the first person yesterday I was talking about somebody saying that, you know, atheists in Pakistan, Don't so worry. they just stop all of a sudden. Yeah, so I was saying that this idea of mockery, the Quran is has a verse which tells people that, you know, we've got an answer for something that you're scratching your head over. Just have a look at it. And it guarantees it'll be a it'll be a framework within which they can at least go towards some kind of um insanity in what they're doing. Time eight forty, if that today is at eight fifty, and bringing this conversation to its logical end for today. That all of this message is given to us by none else than Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, who's one of the names is Sirajum Munira. Hmm. Uh, um, Bashir, Nadir, and then Sirajum Munir. I mean, that's an interesting one to start to end off with. We've got 10 minutes, five minutes. Yeah, we've got about eight minutes. Yeah, so Sirajum Munir is such a fantastic one because Siraj is um, like a, a lamp or some kind of luminous body. Munir is something that you know emanates light. So it's sufficient to say Siraj. But what's interesting is this name comes from the Quran itself. So you know it's interesting about people who say you know I actually heard you know lectures on this kind of topic where people say you know the Quran is light and the Prophet is not light. And then they argue and argue, and then I, then I kind of say to them, oh, the Qur'an says that the Prophet Okay, forget the verses that can can mean that the Prophet may have been the light, or the Qur'an may have been the light, or Islam. Because it's famous, is a famous verse, three three opinions on it. The majority of scholars always said it was the Qur'an. The, the, the more accurate position is the Prophet because of, the scholars of tafsir clearly saying it is because well, the fact there's no repetition in the Quran and the verse would end up being a repetition about the Quran because it always already says that it's a, a, a light and a guidance anyway. But elsewhere in the Quran, in this is in the Quran, it says clearly we've sent you as a, a you know a person of glad tidings, bearer of glad, glad tidings, and a warner. And a, and, a, and a caller to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by, by his permission, and also a, a luminous light, Siraj Munir. And you know, in the context of bodies, celestial bodies, Siraj is something that points you in a direction that gives you guidance. And so, you know, the Prophet, you could say, was a Siraj, which is what he's luminous as a body. You know, he, the Prophet was, you know, saying Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu said that he was, he said that, 
as if the sun used to swim in, in the face of the Prophet. It was so luminous. And Jabir ibn Samir anhu said that he never he, he saw the, the full moon and he saw the Prophet. And he wondered which one was more luminous and bright. And he said, when I saw the Prophet again and I looked at the full moon again, I decided it was the Prophet. Like that's luminosity, a physical luminosity. But Siraj Munir here is something that gives you direction. So essentially, the Prophet being that is not just some kind of physical um, explanation of his physical form and his body, but it's actually the fact that he is he's a guide, a guiding light. And not just a light that you know, only some people see. Like if he's Siraj, if he was just Siraj, you would say, well, some people see it, some people don't. Some people study and, and search out and look and travel and, and, and after that they find out. But the Prophet was Munir. In other words, you know, it was pretty obvious to anybody who saw him and studied his life and appreciated what he was teaching that it is essentially a path to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is the blessing of Islam is that we're given a prophet whose prominence as a prophet is undeniable. There's no prophet that we know of that has such um, such great fame and and and, and uh, honor on earth, and that means that the fact that what he's teaching and preaching and what he is calling people to as as a guide for their lives is going to be apparent and obvious and easily accessible for people. So you have this quality of the Prophet being Siraj Munir, so nobody can complain on the day, day of judgment that he came and we didn't see him, we didn't hear about him, or it wasn't clear. Because there's no aspect of the Prophet's life as a person, as a character, or his personality, or his mannerisms, that is nothing but, you know, Siraj and nothing but Munir. So Munir explains the quality of Siraj, right? It yeah, it, more... it gives uh, explanation of it, yes. Munir, it basically means Munawwar. Lit up. Yes, yeah, so you have a siraj, which is a, which is a light, or a lamp, but there's no point in it being obstructed. There's no point in it being in, insignificant or small. Monir means that it has impact. It's impactful. Its light is um, beyond itself. Mm -hmm. Subhanallah. So, uh, for young people listening, younger people, children listening. Mm. Siraj Munir, how mm. do we kind of give them uh, in a in a, in a bite size? How do they interact with this name of Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? I mean, for a young child, you would say, you know, you're in in the pitch dark, and you're scared of the dark, and you're scared of monsters. Then you're just saying, what 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 greater gift can you have than the light being put on? Yeah. Do you understand? Like you're you're scared and you're looking for a way out or you're looking for direction. You put the light on, end of story. Human adults are no different. But our 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 ghosts are the ghosts of sin. And in that context, you need and the light put on. Sirajim Munira. SubhanAllah. Okay, so what a way to end today's reflection. The ghosts of our sins need the light from our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and hence he's called Sirajum Munira. Uh, that's all we have for reflections today. We'll leave you with uh, some verses of this Nath. Bashir kahiye, Nadir kahiye, Unhe Siraj Munir kahiye.